Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 228 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Monday night, December 12th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, if we get this up in the next, oh, three hours and 44 minutes, we will have made it inside of a month. <laughs> I was just looking that up. November 13th being our last episode. <laughs> Way to go, guys. Way to go. That's a real just-in-time delivery of podcasts. I, I, I mean, you know, I, one of us keeps over-promising and one of us keeps not. And and <laughs> I, I, actually, the, the better version of that would have been one of us keeps over-promising and one of us is me. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I have no recollection. I have, I'm like a closer. I, I have short memory. Don't, I don't remember what might <laughs> mine have been said. That's why you're, 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 the, you're the closer in this scenario, and I'm the starting pitcher. I think that's a good division of labor. I like it. I, I, it's possible I may have said something about maybe one or two weeks. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, new, we know what our New Year's resolution is going to be. Uh, but we? hey, we've got a holiday episode here on December 12th. What do you, okay, Steve, just to start with it, are we going to get another episode in before it becomes 2023? I mean, if I say, if, no. <laughs> it matters not what we say. It matters what we do. I, I don't know. Are you here the week after Christmas? Uh, no. So, so then no. So no. But, but I'll be available. So. Oh, so it's our, it's our year-end episode. That's kind yeah. of weird. I hadn't we, planned for this at all. Our holidays. We, we won't do a regular episode, but maybe, maybe we'll do a holiday special. <laughs> what's the uh, what's the Chewbacca one from back in the day? The, oh the gosh, the I'm just saying, man. This is this is the moral of the story. One of us overpromises, and one of us is me. <laughs> you know, in, in some areas, I, I deliver on the promises, just not so much on timing of podcasts. Um, so, what have we got to talk about today? I mean, nothing's happened in the last month, so we can <laughs> just go straight happened. to frivolity. Sure. Can we can we go straight to free agency in Major League Baseball and at long last our review of Andor the series? We probably better do some national. I was going to say, in fact, that there actually is national security law news actually happening that we yeah we've got some traditional stuff. We we have a Pan Am 103 development that's very much worth talking about. That there there's something I did not have on my bingo card. No, I didn't didn't. uh, I guess if you if you think about it it was sort of inevitable that was going to come down we were going to get get him sooner or later but there we go so we're going to talk I mean, it's, been, it's, been, it's been 34 years right um 34 years uh speaking of extradition there's a certain former crypto bro who is now sitting in a bahamanian jail as we're as we're here so sam bankman fried is not really a national security law story but we can't resist the extradition segue well, yeah, exactly. You've got and and there was another guy, actually, um, a, a Mauritanian guy who was uh, linked to Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, who I think also was recently. I'm going to look into the details. While look we're at you, extradition in the in the house. Yeah, actually, he was recently brought in from Mali. So uh, we've got a trio of extradition cases to talk about. <laughs> One of these definitely not like the others. Um, uh, we have we have the 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 denouement of Mar-a-Lago Palooza. Incredible um, how uh, you know it arrives so suddenly, goes out so fast. All right, so why don't, why don't we start with that? And yeah, I, was, I was going into, with I was going with ended with a whimper, not a bang. But yeah, the literary references abound. So let's let's begin with uh, the documents and the attempt to uh, prevent review of the documents and the over the top expansive invocations or attempted invocations of executive privilege. Some of which caught on with District Judge Cannon, much to, I think, our mutual surprise. And now the 11th Circuit has spoken. Steve, what did they say? They said, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Overexpansive invocations of executive privilege by the person who does not currently have the executive privilege. But also, Um, I mean, one of the things that I find so striking about the 11th Circuit's opinion, which I would really encourage folks to read, it's quite readable, is that it actually, like in very plain language, explains exactly what the problem is with Judge Cannon's opinion. Like, well, we have two, cho- you know, we have three choices. We can either completely upend all criminal procedure, we can create a special rule for former presidents, or we can follow the laws. It's been on the books forever. Which <laughs> works just fine. Um, anyway, so you got this unanimous thumping. Um, by the 11th Circuit, including a panel with two, a panel that included two Trump appointees. Um, this, the, the mandate was set to issue 
seven days after the decision, which meant that like Trump could theoretically have gone to the Supreme Court for emergency relief. Um, that time has come and gone. I think he has perhaps finally gotten the lesson that the Supreme Court is not going to save him. Um, I think it's interesting. So no attempt. Part of his playbook, as we have talked about for years, is to kick the can down the road, play for time. And and there's some interest here. He's got, I would actually argue, he's got a lot of interest in trying to play for time, hoping for something in 2024 that could bail him out. Um, and the, either he... Either he didn't make that call, or maybe is it possible he just has trouble at this point pulling together sort of good order with his own attorneys? What, what I don't do know, but I, I mean, but Bobby, I mean, I mean, already like we're only two and a half months into the Supreme Court term, and already there have been two separate, um, you know, rejections of Trump emergency requests with no public dissents. So the writing's on the wall. I mean, like I think, you know. I, I don't know why he didn't do it, but like, even if he had done it, it would have been a fair, it, it would have just prolonged the inevitable. That's um, for sure. I mean, I, I think I completely agree with that. I think the court was not remotely going to be down with right. any of the nonsense that was. And so I think the question here. is just like the, now, you know, so, so today, right, this morning, Judge Cannon finally dismissed the Fakakta lawsuit. And I think the question now is just like whether anything comes of what DOJ has found, right? right. And that's. So we've, we've gone to this massive detour this massive procedural right. detour that ate up uh, a handful of months now we're back to figuring out okay um who's in serious legal jeopardy here now we've, we've rehearsed that on this show a lot yep. there's there, there somebody somebody's certainly in jeopardy just somebody how lied the that will go uh and it'll be interesting to find out over time uh just tell me whether there's a layer of insulation between mm-hmm. those who mm-hmm. actually handled documents and move them around and uh the former president himself we shall see is there anything else to be said about this episode um, so sure not this is. episode per se but while all this is going on of course the january 6th committee is hard at work writing its final report um there's been widespread reporting in the last couple of days that that report is going to include um multiple criminal referrals to the department of justice and and bobby i think it is increasingly the expectation of folks who have watched the committee that one of those referrals is going to be Trump. Um, and I think the question is, you know, I mean, DOJ does not need a criminal referral from a congressional committee to investigate and indict. But I think the question is whether a criminal referral from the January 6th committee is going to move the needle in any meaningful way. Do you think that they're still struggling internally to figure out whether to take that particular step? The committee or DOJ? Who's they? Committee, the committee. Um, no. You think they're going to do it? Yes. Oh man. It's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I just, I don't know. Like, like what, why else? I mean, like if it seems like the committee's work has been building toward that conclusion. And if that's not the conclusion it's been building toward, then. Yeah. Do you think it'd be considered a failure if it doesn't go that way? Um, so, you know, I'm the wrong person to ask that question of because I'm a for, I'm one of those who believes that like historical memory actually is sometimes inconsistent with criminal prosecution, right? That like, you know, building a, a historical narrative has value unto itself. Certainly. Um, I, I'm with you on that, by the way. I mean, I think it's a separate question, which should be answered by depends on exactly what the evidence you yep, know, shows. Exactly uh, so. And and so 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 but all that's to say that like I think the January sixth committees historical function can be vindicated whether or not, right? It culminates in criminal referrals. I'm with you on that. And I know a lot of people won't be because a lot of people are only viewing it through the lens of, can you get from this process to a prosecution? Um, And as you said earlier, the prosecution prospect doesn't depend on this process. And and, uh, then again, it does seem that the more persuasive the narrative case put together when they when they produce their version of yep. the 9-11 commission report, which is surely narratively and rhetorically what they're sort of aspiring for. And I think NPR had a piece the other morning talking about the uh, the artistry of trying to do a government document that yep. will resonate and be readable and actually be read by yep. a larger audience. And the 9-11 commission report being the all-time champion of that genre. I'm not, I can't think of another government document that has anything like that kind of readability. 
I don't know that there's ever been another government document nominated for an, or that made the finalist stage for the National Book Award as the 9-11 Commission report justifiably did. Um, well, continue to watch that space for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, by the time we record next, we'll have the report. Holiday edition. <laughs> Along with the Chief Justice's year-end report on the state of the federal judiciary, which always drops at like 6 p.m. on New Year's Eve. Hey, whatever happened with the, the investigation into the leak of the... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you sweet summer child. <laughs> oh, Bobby. Sorry, I didn't which, which, which leak? Jobs leak. Which leak? I mean, what about what about the Alito Hobby Lobby leak? Well, I think the one, the investigation is what I asked about. Nick, the investigation may have been specific <laughs> to the Dobbs leak. Um, remarkably, we have not heard anything about the investigation into the Dobbs leak, which ah, surprises okay. me not at all. <laughs> nope, nope. Well, uh, should we pivot to some core national security I mean, traditional topics? We've got some counterterrorism law to discuss. Yeah, I was just going to make fun of the Supreme Court a little bit, but we can pivot. <laughs> Don't you have a sub stack that exists for this purpose? So, in the, ah, thank you for the opportunity to plug in case you are not already reading one first. Um, so apparently, so today's issue, today's today's newsletter is about the impeachment of Samuel Chase, old bacon face. Old bacon face. But apparently the way that the title is in some people's emails, it got cut off after Samuel. So it reads the impeachment of Justice Samuel dot dot oh, dot. Oh, no. Did you get some uh, <laughs> overexcited utterances? I got a couple people on Twitter saying, man, you really got my hopes up. Let's see here. I'm opening my version of that email. No, I see the I see the full thing. <laughs> I see the full thing. Oh, my goodness. Um, I've been having fun. I mean, it's, okay, it's, I want to hear about it. Like, tell me, like, what's the uh, author's author's uh, account of what it's like to have a Substack going? And how- I'm having fun. I mean, it's 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 a I mean, the Supreme Court is such a wide ranging topic. Um, and it's been a lot of fun each week to think about sort of, you know, balancing something current with something historical that's interesting and relevant. Um, yeah. Can you take all the content at the end and stick it together as a book? Like a comprehensive history of the Supreme Court? The no, no, more of an idiosyncratic, like a, a Supreme Court week, you know, literally just a compilation yeah. of it all. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I doubt it. I mean, because like I'm, I, I am deliberately not going in any sort of, forced order um like i'm i'm trying to let events dictate at least to some degree what the week-to-week coverage is so like last week for example i wrote about the um dramatic increase in how many cases the court is deciding at a very early stage of litigation yeah so cert before judgment you know appeals from preliminary injunctions and that was prompted by the court in the same week, hearing oral argument in the Texas immigration priorities case and agreeing to take up on a very expedited basis the six state, six red state challenge to the student loan program, right? And just like that's, you know, the, in the student loan case, Bobby, no court has ruled on like in the at least in the in that case in the Nebraska versus Biden, no court has said a word about the merits. And here's the Supreme Court coming in. And so anyway, so so part, part of that is like to be flexible and to be able to sort of have it be as sort of topical as possible. I don't have like a week to week plan. It's more like I have a list of it's like when we started this, right? Like we had a list of deep dives. <laughs> like, we're, we're still working through that. Um, we are still working through that, but like, you know, we had we had sort of like when there's nothing else pressing, we can do this. Yeah. Exactly. Um, right. And so like. So the impeachment of Samuel Chase, like I, I knew I always wanted to write about that relatively early in the newsletter. And it just seemed like with all of the ethical stuff out in the wind with regard to the Supreme Court right now, it was a good time to talk about judicial impeachment. Well, I, I do love when I, t- when I teach common law, I love talking about Justice Chase being old bacon face. But I always put him up there because I come to him in the context of Calder v. Bull. Um, and I use that as the vehicle to set up the original version of the classic debate over uh, judicial enforcement of unenumerated rights. With look at with you chasing the uh, natural rights, sure, yeah, of course, absolutely position, and Justice Iredell 
in the like, but who's to say what's in and what's out position. Yep. And it's great because yep. the fact pattern in that case is so generic and boring and it's, it's entirely apolitical and, and de- disconnected from all the, the, the current issues. But, but also it's important to offset describing Chase as old bacon face by, by putting up a picture of Iredell. I don't have a catchy name for him, but the picture shows him to have like the worst haircut anybody ever had. <laughs> so it seems like it kind of balances out aesthetically. So the, the, my favorite, my favorite, um, how do I say my favorite completely random piece of trivia about the chase impeachment is who presided over his impeachment trial. Hmm. Do I know this? Do I know this? Do I know this? I do not. Who presided? Who, so who's the president of the Senate in February of 1805? Sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot. It's no, Aaron Burr. This is good. This is good. I can give, give me the Jeopardy music. 1805. So the Jeffersonians at the Senate. Monroe? No, not Monroe. I don't know who. Who's Jefferson's first vice president? Wait, Matt. Uh, oh, Burr. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. Yes. Aaron Burr. So Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr. Oh, wow. But wait, here's here's what's great about it. Aaron Burr, who had been dumped from the ticket. Right, who had lost his effort to run for governor of New York, who doesn't have a job, right? Who is the lamest of lame ducks, is the presiding officer of the Senate in February 1805. So he presides over his impeachment trial, which leads one contemporary to say, usually the murderer is arraigned before the judge. Here, the judge was arraigned before the murderer. <laughs> Wait, so would you? Does this? What does this do for the argument over the status of the Veep? As an Article One officer in that capacity, in what sense? Just like that, if that's his only job, his only function that he's got. I mean, I guess in theory, if the Senate had tied on something, he he would have had a a job as well in that period. Right. I mean, he's vice president until what, March fourth, right? Amazing. Um, till March fourth. So, like, literally, his last. I mean, I think it's true that his last official capacity act as vice president is presiding over Chase's impeachment trial. Right. All which makes sense because of course the, uh, the inauguration used to be March 4th. Yep. Anyway, so, so that, that part, so that part's been fun. Like right. Getting to write about all that, like historical stuff has been a lot of fun for me. Um, that's, that's very cool. Um, and so are you tracking numbers? (laughs) Only marginally obsessively. So, um, we're up to about 8,200 subscribers. Um, which I feel like is pretty good for a month, but you know, Hey, if you're listening to this and you're not already a subscriber to one first, Steve Now this, this, this trivia question may be a layup for you, but who, who was Jefferson's second vice president? Isn't it George Clinton? Yes, it is. (laughs) Staying with New York for regional balance. Right. But also I just love that his name is George Clinton. I know it, it was the funkiest time in, in the administration of. All right, all right. Early proposal for episode title: Not that George Clinton. Not that. Okay, let me let me jot that down. Not that. Um, there are some really obscure vice presidents in that period of American history. Uh, yeah. Who? Okay. Raises an interesting question: Uh-oh. Who is the most obscure vice president there's ever been? Like who really rates that? Hmm. I mean, one of the crazy things about George Clinton is he's vice president under two different presidents, right? Doesn't he? Isn't he also Madison's Rich. first vice president? I think that's right. I'm not super positive about it. All right, I'm going to go on a limb here and say, in the annals of obscure vice presidents, Daniel Tompkins has to be up there. All right, talk, tell us the story of old Daniel Tompkins. Or is there no story, and is that what justifies him, the title? So Tompkins is, to Tompkins is Monroe's vice president. And he's another another New York governor. Like another he's, New he's Yorker. Successor, right, to George Clinton, actually. Yep, yep. In, in um, both offices, perhaps? What's that? Maybe in both offices, like both as governor and then as... I think that might be right. I don't know. Now we're getting yeah. far afield of anything I know. Um but anyway, but so he's the only vice president in the entire 19th century to serve like two full terms. Hmm. Really? 
That's yes, Ad, Adams great. does it. Adams does it right from you know Adams, the first vice president, serves two full terms. But there isn't another other than Daniel Tompkins. There isn't another one. I think until Thomas Marshall, um, right in like as who's like Wilson's vice president. That's interesting. Um, I'm looking up a little bit about him here. <laughs> Sounds like quite a character. Um, Richard Mentor Johnson, who's Martin Van Buren's vice president, also pretty freaking obscure. Can you imagine how many listeners right now are like, guys, 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 guys. please. Can we get back to politics, please? Please. All right. Um, Um, Let's do that. Let's uh, pivot over to the world of counterterrorism. Man, I didn't even get a chance to talk about Garrett Hobart. (laughs) It sounds like you're going to start a new sub stack. Um, I'm really not doing – I am not doing a sub stack on vice presidents, although I do think – is it Brian Colt? Someone once wrote a really good – no, it wasn't Brian Colt. Who did it? Someone once wrote a really good paper about vice presidential power. Um, oh, that's a great topic. I'm trying to remember who it was. It I wasn't sure about Brian a sub stack, but maybe a good movie. Um, shoot. I'm going to figure out who it was. Right, oh, I, yes, exactly. It was Joel Goldstein. Okay. Yeah, we talked about this once on the show. A long time ago. Like episode, I don't know. Last episode, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't narrow it down much. All right, so here's the news, or let's recap because yeah, we sorry, just that was everybody. quite a tangent we just went on. My bad. That was, that was very typical if you're if you're new. Indeed, yourself, sadly, uh, Pan Am 103 used to be the most for a time the most prominent in the United States, one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, acts of international terrorism that there was. This is 1988 when it went down. It was actually, we're coming up on the anniversary. Mm-hmm. It was December 21st, um, I believe, right? December 21st, 1988. I think and, uh, that's right. Uh, there were 270 people killed when a Pan Am flight that had left Heathrow was heading to JFK. It was over Scotland, I mean, half hour or so after takeoff. And a bomb on board went off, took the plane down, and it and debris landed in an, in the neighborhood in Lockerbie, directly below, and killed something like eleven additional individuals. It was horrific. All people from all over the world on that plane. Lots of Americans, 190 Americans specifically, including famously a large group of Syracuse University students who were coming back from uh, being abroad for I guess the fall semester. Really tragic, and um, it's been known for a long time that the Libyan government under Gaddafi uh, had carried out this atrocity. It is part of the larger horrific record of, of Libyan-sponsored uh, acts of terrorism in the 1980s. Um, this whole story, we might have to do a deep dive, a multi-series, multi-episode deep dive. Series. Well, there were so many uh, war powers questions that came up during this period in the Reagan administration in particular because of things that were happening more overtly than these sorts of covert attacks uh, by the Libyans having to do with Gaddafi's attempt to establish a zone of control or, as he put it, the line of death uh, across (laughs) the Gulf of Sidra in what were international waters and the U.S. Navy following its traditional defense of freedom of navigation was crossing that line to make a point of demonstrating freedom of navigation. And um, there were a number of episodes in which uh, uh, Libyan fighter aircraft fired on American fighter aircraft and American fighter aircraft retaliated. Then you kind of get some of the tit for tat shifting into the, the realm of shadows with bombs going off, most infamously, uh, before Pan Am 103, the LaBelle discotheque bombing in West Berlin, where uh, way more than 100 people were were horribly injured, or, or at least seriously injured, some of them horribly, and then two American service members and one Turkish citizen were killed. Um, and then that precipitated the El Dorado Canyon operation in which the Reagan administration launched airstrikes into uh, various targets in Libya itself. So um, this is all in the aftermath of that, that, that long running back and forth. It's part of that story. Um, and the basic way it went down was uh, a suitcase bomb was created. There's a piece of Samsonite luggage that had a bomb loaded in it with a timer. Uh, a fellow named Abu Agala Mohammed Masood, who is now 71 years old and is now in custody 
uh, in, I believe it's District of DC, right, Steve? That's where they brought I, him in. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he he was born in Tunisia, citizen of Libya, was it was an operative for the Gaddafi regime. Um, he met with the with two other guys, and he's the guy that, at least according to some of his own account uh, and and other information, he set the timer in, in cooperation with these two other guys who have long since been identified and prosecuted in connection with the bombing. But but uh, Masoud had not been publicly identified at, or maybe had been publicly identified, but he it wasn't publicly identified that there were charges pending, let alone that we were about to get him. The two other guys, uh, in the face of UN and US, uh, UN sponsored or, or approved, and then US sanctions on Libya, eventually caused Gaddafi to give up the two other operatives. And in, in what was at its time sort of this landmark procedural innovation, they were sent to the Netherlands to be tried, to be prosecuted for the murders under Scottish law. So it was, it was a super complicated sort of variant of the sort of thing you sometimes see where we come up with an international court to, to be an ad hoc solution to how do you administer justice after right, like a species of universal jurisdiction yeah, exactly um and so that, that was an interesting proceeding one of those officers who was prosecuted was acquitted uh, the other one was convicted and given a life sentence but damned if he wasn't released in 2009 uh as a sort of it was because he, he'd gotten i think it was prostate cancer had a terminal diagnosis he was he was released early and got to live out. Unlike all of his victims, he got to live out his last few years in what comfort was available to him, and then died in 2012. So meanwhile, there's this guy Masood who is has as much blood in his hand as these other guys. Um, and we I don't think we have the details yet. I know there was an Interpol red notice to to get him. It's it's been uh, since almost two years ago the DOJ publicly announced. I think we talked on the show. Yep, actually, about the about indictment. The Right? Yep. Yep. So, so it was it was clear we were looking for him, hoping to get him, and I don't think we have the details of where he was caught and how he was turned over to the U.S. But we do know that he's here now, and he will face trial. I guess there will be some interesting evidentiary issues about the admissibility of his self-inculpatory statements that were. Made. I, mean, I, think, I mean, I think that's good. If this, assuming it goes to trial, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting questions. The one thing I saw, and, and I've, I, I've only been online a little bit today, but the one thing I saw was that apparently one of the things we agreed to in exchange for extradition was to not pursue the death penalty. Right. Oh, that's key. Right. So the prosecution is already framed as is seeking a life sentence, right? Yeah. Or that's been made yep. clear. Yep. So does that suggest he was found in Europe somewhere? Or do you, yes. Because I don't know that the Libyans themselves would. It's the Libyans. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't. I couldn't. No, no, no. It's never. It's never wrong to bring up Back to the Future. Um, <laughs> um, so, but actually, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's relevant too because I, I find with my teenagers, we watch Back to the Future, and they're like, "It's the who? It's the what? Why? Why is that?" It's like, look, you got to you got to understand the '80s. Yep. Uh, the Libyans top of the list of, of dangerous people, and this is partly why. Yep. So, I mean, so, so my suspicion is that, yes, as more comes out, we'll find out that it was, um, if not directly transferred from a European country, at least that another European country was directly involved and that a condition of their involvement was us not pursuing capital charges. Certainly. That would certainly make sense. We'll keep a close eye on that. You know, the charges themselves are, are not particularly interesting in, in, from a national security law podcast concerned. They're very straightforward examples. Yeah, it's what you'd expect. Yeah, there, there it's uh, destruction of an aircraft with loss of life and destruction of a vehicle using an explosive with loss of life. Things that were already crimes in 88. Yeah. yeah, very, very straightforward, direct crime of violence type offenses and great illustrations of what we talk about on the show periodically, which is uh, Title 18's full of terrorism section, terrorism laws that are federal laws relating to terrorism, but they're defined in terms of the violent acts themselves because life's a lot simpler that way with these offenses. Um, so not too much else to say. If, if there's not a plea, then what will be interesting is any kind of questions about the admissibility of his inculpatory statements, I think. Beyond that, looks pretty straightforward. I think All that's right. right. Now, before we get to the, uh, the crypto, let me just quickly note that Previously on around, uh, I think it was December 10th, so uh, maybe just a couple of days ago, actually, it must have been this weekend, um, much less attention was paid to what in some ways is, in, in some ways more extreme because it's it's uh, 
straight out of recent history, a guy named Fawaz Uld Ahmed Uld Ahmed, um, also known as Ibrahim Idris, from Mauritania. Uh, he's in the United, Sta United States in the Eastern District of New York. There's a six count terrorism related indictment relating to his involvement in a March 2015 um, attack at a restaurant in Mali that killed five people, as well as an attack um, a few months after that at a hotel in Mali where 13 people, including a bunch of UN workers, were killed. And then a few months after that, another hotel in Mali, this time 20 people killed, including an American, Anita Dittar. Um, so he was captured in Mali. It's not exactly clear how, at least not that I've seen. He was transferred to U.S. custody in Mali and got shipped off to JFK. And so he's in the he's in the process as well. Um, and there, I think, let me let me check if we see anything. The statutory maximum. The charges for him are uh, the murder of Anita Dittar, unlawful use of firearms in connection with the crime of violence, uh, causing the death of Anita Dittar through the use of a firearm, conspiracy to provide material support to a DFTO, a designated foreign terrorist organization, in this case, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM, and, uh, and providing and attempting to provide material support to the same and unlawful use of explosives. Uh, and the description in the DOJ press release is uh, maximum sentence, life in prison. Um, so there you go. We'll, we'll see what happens next on those. Now, those weren't the only uh, cross-border detainee <laughs> transfers. We got we got another one that's not really, it's not counterterrorism law. It's uh, counter-economics. What, what do we call crypto <laughs> these days, Steve? Uh, Ponzi scheme. <laughs> so we've, we've got, uh, who's in hot water now? Uh, we knew uh, Water. Yes, yes. Sam Bankman-Fried, whose hot water has been, I think, clear to everyone except perhaps himself um, for the last six weeks, um, was arrested today by Bahamanian authorities um, upon a, an extradition request from the Department of Justice. Um, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York has since announced that it is planning to unseal an indictment against SBF uh, tomorrow morning. So this is going to end badly. Um, you know, it's, a, it's one of the many things that are amazing about his case is how uh, free he's been with inter, uh, interviews. I mean, he's been appearing. <laughs> free is one word for it. <laughs> yeah, he, he's been speaking uh, publicly at length about this. He's the child of law professors. How did, how, who, like, why hasn't someone just like taped his mouth shut? I know. Amazing. So, but this gives me a chance. So, um, um, two of Karen and my good friends, Karen Delaney and Jennifer judge have a new podcast called lawyers behaving badly. Um, oh, and, is it all about like people who should know better? Yeah, basically. But so, um, like unplanned, but like perfectly timed their first two episodes is a two part, uh, sort of, uh, uh, uh breakdown of an introduction to, um, the whole SBF FTX fiasco. Um, what I, I love KP and JJ, so I love I'll, I'll listen to anything they do. But like, what's especially useful about those two episodes is for people like me who don't so much understand crypto. Um, it's a really good introduction to like how it all is supposed to work and where the problems are and why FTX is in such big trouble. That's fantastic. Well, what's the name of the show again? Lawyers behaving badly. <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> you followed that out soon by law professors uh, well, law professors behaving badly is the next is, is not a podcast anyone wants to hear no that's for sure um, right. but, um, but they're they're also they're both um they're both uh texans um and i think i'm pretty sure jj is an alumna so that's fantastic well i i support this whatever the content is i support it <laughs> um that's amazing all right um, well what else we got i think it's time for frivolity and yes, I recognize we've already detoured several times into that field, but now let's drive the entire bus onto the field. What do you say? Um, if we must. I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure that in the last month, other things have happened. Um, in future episodes, I think we will have to get back into some of what's going on in Ukraine. Um, I think um, the Supreme Court actually has some really important cases coming up in the spring. Um, the, the Gonzalez versus Google and Twitter versus Tomina cases, which oh, yeah. are about, I mean, on their face, they're about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and the liability 
of social media platforms for, you know, facilitating acts of international terrorism. Um, there's other stuff in there about the Anti-Terrorism Act itself and civil remedies for, you know, secondary liability for internet. So I actually think it would be useful for us to talk about those cases once they're scheduled for argument. That hasn't happened yet, um, but they're probably going to be argued in March. Absolutely relevant for us, not yep. just because it's sort of generally interesting, but questions that get at the interplay between the uh, anything that gets near the questions about the discretion of the private entities that own and operate platforms that are major methods of communication and the ability of government to control that or not control that directly or indirectly, this is critical. Yes. You know, of course, that segue demands uh, that we check in with what's your latest feeling about Twitter, Steve? <sighs> it's, it's getting not, uglier. It's, it's, it's getting... It, it's getting nastier and uglier by the day. I mean, I brought some of that upon myself because I've been writing about how Elon Musk doesn't understand the First Amendment. Um, so I had a piece that MSNBC published over the weekend, basically walking through the specific claims Musk has made about how the the conduct revealed, I put in scare quotes in the Twitter files, um, represents serious violations of the First Amendment and how he, no, they don't. <laughs> The government, the, the government coerced people into anyway. Um, but the, so I don't know if some of this is just like the Musk bots coming for me, but like the, everything is more toxic by the day. And I just, there's going to come up and, and, and Musk, I think is also getting more, um, I, 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 one might say unhinged. I would just say like, I think he's showing more and more of his true colors by the day. And so I think, you know, the it, it might become increasingly just like unpleasant to be on that platform for much longer. But why not why not prune what you're seeing there? Why not mute all references to Musk? Why not why not switch to a model in which you're following just a handful of news outlets and, yeah. and people you do enjoy and get benefit from? Like yeah. why walk away from the platform as a whole towards I mean, because I haven't I yet. Most of us would hate to not have any platform like this, and it just doesn't seem like Mastodon's really. Yeah, I don't. I don't Mastodon isn't it, and I'm not sure Post is it either. I, I, I haven't. So I mean, I haven't walked away yet for some of the reasons you you are you articulate. But you know, I, I think there are two pieces to this. Piece one is like there comes a point where it's just you know where, I mean, you know, I write about stuff that is not necessarily. Um, uncontroversial and so i'm gonna have you know i'm gonna things i write are gonna provoke people no matter how i sort of um curate my feed but I, the other piece of this and i think this is the more important one bobby is there comes a point where people like me are gonna have serious qualms about doing anything that could be remotely construed as supporting musk um and you know the more that he sort of, you know, like his prosecute Fauci tweet, um, his tweet about how, you know, woke, woke liberals, you know, woke liberalism is a disease. Um, you know, I, there comes a point where I, where it's like crossing a picket line. Like, you know, even if I curate the feed and even if I mute the right things, and even if I sort of am only talking to a small circle of people, am I simply by being on Twitter actually, you know, sort of validating what is the increasingly indefensible behavior of this crazy billionaire. Should, by that logic, I assume you would not touch a it, it, price, no object. I assume you would not touch a Tesla. Um, I, 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 I haven't yet and don't plan to, but right. But that's maybe overdetermined. Um, like you're not really in the market for that, right? No, no, no. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you, like, so, you say like people should not drive Teslas. They shouldn't use Twitter. They NASA should not be in bed with SpaceX. I that mean, if Musk is, if Musk is going to behave this way, then yes. I mean, I realize that's not necessarily a consensus view, but like, I mean, the the extent to which he is using his very very loud megaphone to embrace conspiracy theories to promote white supremacists to, you know, sort of, um, I think 
say things that are only further dividing the the realities that half of America lives in. Like these are very dangerous things for him to be doing. Not just distasteful, Bobby, but dangerous. And I think at some point folks have to ask themselves, like, should I be doing anything that in any way, you know, facilitates that? I wonder if so your argument is is a strong argument for their for somebody settling on an alternative right and that's the problem that on just can't do that it's just not designed in a way that will really support it because it, right no i mean there's no i mean look, if there were an alternative to twitter everyone would be there already yeah um so so this is the sort of this so so for me this is the this is the sort of the trap I feel, or the the dilemma on the on which I'm on the horns of which I'm on, right? Which is, on the one hand, you know, I want to be useful, I want to raise level of public debate, I want to help people understand why Musk doesn't understand the First Amendment. On the other hand, like, Twitter's bad, <laughs> and and there's going to come a point where, like, I think, you know, people have to wonder whether they should just get off Twitter in protest as opposed to, you know, in sort of response to particular things are happening to them. Well, I'll just say that I think you you make a really, really important contribution to public discourse and you engage in a way that's kind of unique with its combination of scale and quality. And obviously I don't agree with everything you say, <laughs> uh, as you know, but I agree with a lot of what you say. And, and I'd hate for it not to be there and I'd hate for the field to be emptied out. There's a lot of people who, who learn a ton from you. So my vote is for you to stay in there and to prune and prune and prune and prune and prune. It's it's not it's not Twitter the platform is, that is inherently bad. Uh, you've made the argument. I think we all know the the main argument, which is that people behave terribly on Twitter because of the the bad intersection of how the the perceived anonymity of the technology and the way people behave in that circumstance. That's to be addressed by being more rigorous and, and limiting who you're following and reading. You, you make a more challenging argument with the argument that at some point just Musk himself uh, becomes odious to the point where you just don't want to be affiliated with a product that he's personally identified with in such a way. Um, but the fact remains that so much of, of the public discourse is is mediated through Twitter and there's no alternative for it yep. that's yep. on the horizon. So I think it should stay in there. I mean, the irony is the irony, the irony is that what makes Musk so dangerous is also what makes Twitter so valuable. <laughs> um, so, um, speaking of uh, uh, the, the the competing forces of good and evil, should we talk about Andor? Okay, so I finally am up to speed. It was wonderful. It was absolutely. It's fantastic. Wonderful, and as somebody said online, I don't know who said this. I'm sure many people did. I'm sure many more thought it. If only we could take that entire creative team. And give and make them, movies. Give them the prequels and say, just yeah. burn them over. everything you know about the prequels and redo yep. them. Yep. That um, so I, I, I believe, and I'm not the first person to say this either, that Andor is the best science fiction on television since the Battlestar Galactica reboot in 2004. Yeah, I'd, I'd go for that. I mean, there was there were some high moments for Westworld, but it didn't have the ability to resolve it. it so it the, their individual... Right. No, I mean Westworld. There were Westworld had, I think, individual episodes and/or plot lines that were exceptional. But the the overall sort of, you know, sort of, I don't know, the gist or the overall vibe wasn't. It, it wasn't a complete package the way that Andor is. Yeah. I, I what I'd really love. Never mind the prequels. That's a, sort of a lost cause. <laughs> Can they go back and redo uh, Boba Fett? Just Seriously. Pretend, pretend that that never happened. That the Back to the Future Part Two stuff never happened, and just have this creative team do it. Oh, I mean, what I what I love about Andor is that it it, it is so committed at like a basic level to internalizing how you get from sort of discontent with the Empire to a full fledged rebellion, right? Like the the sort of, of the probabilistic. It has real real character development that's done yes. with pacing. Yes. Patience, pacing and patience. Yes. And, and, and in the meantime, unlike the ultra, ultra crappy, that's the technical term, the ultra <laughs> crappy willingness of both Mandalorian and Boba Fett 
to, to kind of do these like kind of fan servicey style like yeah. well not just the fan servicey but like in this episode we'll have like this door the explorer like set of challenges and he's got to go through the forest and over the bridge and then he gets the doodad it it all is so contrived and and there's i guess they were trying to do character development but it sure didn't Sure didn't really. I mean, like- I, I mean, when Andor, when Andor, when Cassian goes to prison, that felt a little contrived. But you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll grant you that it, it wasn't like the most natural evolution. Like that whole thing goes down real yeah. quick. It's like, all right, you're on the beach, you're in trouble. Uh, there's no getting right. out of this. Um, the Empire sure is the six best years. Uh, yeah. Exactly. But you know, also, I, it, it, but but it, right, no, but but it's it's a nece- I mean, in retrospect, you see why it was necessary in the sort of evolution of Cassian Andor. Absolutely, and it also did something that that almost never happens in the endless array of sci-fi products that are about the mean authoritarian government entity. Actually, showed you some of the machinery, some of the yes. some of the you know. So what happens when you get when you get taken off the street? That they, they actually had. They had an arraignment in trial, and it was a total joke. But you actually get to yep. see them using, seeing use use and abuse of the forms of law. Yep, is timely and important. That's a very important message. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like the sort of the Stanford Prison Experiment with like people who think they're right. Like the did did you did you, you, you Stanley Milgram on me? Did you stick around for the post credit scene at the end of the season finale? Um, yeah, I think I, yeah the uh, what they were building. Yeah, what they were building. Yeah, yeah. What the uh, parts were for. Yeah, that was yes. great. That was really. Yes. I mean, you knew they they showed you so repeatedly this thing. It had to be for something pretty useful. Yes. Yeah. Um, you have to do so, a little suspension of disbelief that they need humans to do that at all, considering what the robots and machines. Well, are that there, I mean, there is that, but <laughs> they, they can assemble the big parts in space. But maybe you can tell a story about how like there's some mechanical thing that the robots can't do. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, the other thing is that I actually really liked uh, and that, that I think the show does well is they don't just tell the story through Andor, right? That they also tell the story through Mon Mothma. Oh, yeah. And no, that's right. And, and uh, the other uh, all of them, like, and like, showing, showing how different they all are. And how – but how they – how like all these different people in different levels and strata of – you know, empire society, right, are experiencing different degrees of oppression in ways that are further pushing them toward the rebellion. It's just, it's just, it's so, it's not that it's subtle, like you can't miss it if you watch the show, but it's also, but it's not like in, they don't rub it in your face. Like the, in the season finale, I don't, um, is it Fennec whose speech is like, so there's the speech that is the sort of voiceover that you see while they're getting ready for the funeral on, on, um, yeah. Right. Um, and it's like this and the speech is like such a, like, you know, um, point A to point B, how, like what pushes you to, to sort of go from just being dissatisfied with government to rebelling against government. It's just, it's so, um, the music in the season finale during the funeral, when it starts as like this totally discordant, um, you know, cacophony of badly tuned instruments, and it ends up as this beautiful, somber melody. I mean, I'm really glad you mentioned the music because I wanted to name check Nicholas. I don't know if it's Brittel or Brittel or Brittel, B R I T L L. He's a, a multi time Academy Award winning composer. Um, he's the, the brains behind the music for this. The entire series, I love the the score, including the the part that aren't so much musical pieces, but just mood in the background, because it's so to me overtly nineteen eighties dystopian sci fi. It's got kind of like the Blade Runner kind of feel. It feels mm-hmm. it feels like every bad sort of slightly unsettling movie I watched in the seventies and the eighties as a kid. <laughs> um, and I think it's really it channels. Tron. It's a visual way of pulling. But like, but but grittier, way grittier than the Tron realm of somewhat more produced things. The stuff that was kind of more low budget and, and Stranger Things, the most recent season, did the same deal where you'll get some synthesizer uh, notes going that don't sound like they're staying in tune that well. That's yep. that's the vibe. It's so brilliant. It's so great. And I think it kind of in an audio way harkens back to the the gritty 1970s look that made the original Star Wars 
uh, film that made New Hope so great because it just, yep. as someone said, like the, the the Star Wars universe it looks gritty, looks down to earth, and it's, God, that's so much better than the completely soundstage looking stuff of the the Boba Fett series. Yep, and the fan servicey music there too. Apparently, and apparently there were some very conscious choices made with. Uh, this series to allow him to not be sort of slavishly locked into the John Williams sort of sound universe that has defined star Wars for so long, so well, and yep. it needed that. Yeah. So anyway, all this to say, if you're, if you haven't watched Andor, everybody go watch Andor or at least listen to it. Two thumbs up. Okay. What about major league baseball free agency? Yeah. The hot stove. Oof. This is when everyone's going to leave us. Um, yeah. It's New York Mets time. It's New York they've Mets added time. Some, they've lost some. So I am not bitter about DeGrom because I would not have been happy if the Mets had given him five years. Pretty pretty big risk. It would have cost. Right. I mean, given cost. how given his injury troubles. Like, apparently, the word on the streets that the Mets offered him 135 over three. Um Sure. Which would have made him the highest paid pitcher in baseball history, but only for three years. Yeah. Um, and you know, I that's I can live with that offer. And if you wanted, you know, the five years, and you know, was willing to go to Arlington for those two extra years, you know, more power to him. Well, the Rangers are not afraid to open the checkbook. What do you think about uh, our new Japanese pitcher, Kodai Senga? I'm excited. Have you seen the what? What have you seen his forkball? Forkball? No, I've not. Oh. So he throws he throws like this this weird pitch that like is some kind of like ghost split fingered fastball that to me sometimes looks more like a fork ball but what do I know? Um, <laughs> but he has so you know he has like he can top the gun gun at like a hundred and one but he also has like this nasty messed up split fingered fastball so I'm excited. Nice, that's cool. Well, he's coming to us from the uh, Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks. Indeed. Yeah. Fukuoka. Yep. 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 So, you know, when I was at, I, I spent 10 weeks in 20, in the summer of 2013, teaching at the, uh, um, at Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I tried to do when I was there was to go to as many Japanese baseball games, or at least as many as, as many different Japanese baseball stadiums um, as, I, as I could go to. Um, and there are two that are close to Kyoto, but my favorite by far was the Sapporo Dome, um, which is where the the Ham Fighters play. Ham Fighters, best yep. name. Um, um, I think we talked about actually so 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 t- right. We have to. I mean, technically, it's, they're not the Ham Fighters. It's Nippon Ham is the name, and then it's the Fighters. But I mean, come on, Ham Fighters. Ham Fighters, so much better. Um, and I think we talked about our mutual appreciation for how beautiful Kyoto is. What indeed? A but the, wow. but the other, so Bobby, but I saw a guy in Austin the other day wearing a Hanshin Tigers hat. And I was like, that's a Hanshin Tigers hat. He was like, how the hell did you know that? I was like, because I've been to that stadium. <laughs> nice. Uh, okay, what about what about Verlander? I mean, so they basically dropped for two years um, uh, $86.7 million, so 40-something per year for a couple of years. Um, I mean, God, he, he seemed timeless. He sure looked darn good down the stretch for the Astros this year. Do you feel okay with that? So, I mean, I mean, he's, listen, he's the AL Cy Young, right? I mean, like, <laughs> giving two years to a guy who literally just won the Cy Young after one of the best years of his career doesn't seem like a huge stretch. On the flip side, <laughs> this means that our number one and number two starters are both like, you know, people who could have been our contemporaries, <laughs> um, which, you know, which, which over the well, which over the course of a full season gives me some kind of pause about like, are they going to be able to hold up? So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how the Mets are going to be next year, Bobby. It's going to be hard for me to be excited given like how this year went. Um, I actually think the most useful thing the Mets have done in the offseason so far is um, re-sign Nimmo. Yeah, um, no, he's an underrated guy for sure. Yes, and I think I think he's on the verge of potentially being like, an all-star caliber player, but he's also just such an important cog in the Mets lineup. Um, and, you know, at, at the preposterous level of contemporary baseball contracts, getting him for 
162 over eight, I think is actually not insane. Okay, here's some trivia for you. Are you ready, baseball history fans? I'm probably going to get this wrong. Uh, I think you'll, you'll do well with this. So uh, Verlander turns 40 in February. True. So the question arises, who are history's best 40 and over pitchers? Uh, now, Nolan Ryan. Yeah, Nolan Ryan's – I mean, this list is debatable. What's the criteria? What, what's the, is there some statistic? Uh, no, what? just sheer awesomeness. Nolan Ryan for sure. <laughs> All right, so Nolan Ryan, um, unfortunately, I say this despite, well, Roger Clemens. Okay. Um, I mean, any list of pitchers who were great after 40 has to include Satchel Page, who was like still an amazing pitcher at like 59. Yeah, exactly. And then, of um, course, Cy Young himself, because Cy Young pitched till he was like 10,000. Cy years old. Young, yeah. Um, how old was Walter Johnson when he retired? Uh, good, I, mean, I feel like if we go, like, if, we're t- if we start talking about like pre nineteen fifties pitchers, yeah, people were, pitch till yeah, right. Um, who else was going to their forties? Um, the Negroes. Then yeah, well, when you're throwing them knuckleballs, you can keep going. I mean, right, you can throw forever. Who who else is on the list? Gaylord Perry, who I think passed real recently. Yeah, he just recently passed away. I think pitched into his forties. I'm pretty sure. Mm. Mm, yeah. Um, by the way, Rice and Texas are going to overtime. Oh, really? Good. You know. Okay. So I don't. Th- I can't remember if we talked about this when we were recording. No, this is before we recorded. Extremely um, disturbing situation unfolding with domestic violence and the uh, the suspension, resulting arrest, and then suspension today of Texas head head coach for men's basketball. In the meanwhile, the players, as as to whom you know, none of that's whatever's going on there. None of that's their fault. Players Seriously. have a game tonight, and they're playing Rice, and came out just clearly, just emotionally shellacked. And Rice was up at halftime, which is you know crazy. Texas should <laughs> a huge amount. All due respect to Rice. Yeah, no, I mean the Texas men's basketball team's real good. Sounds like they really kind of turned it on. This could be emotionally powerful. It could be really, you know, how they respond tonight. Obviously, is uh, yeah. So it's seventy-two, seventy-two going to overtime. Wow. So by the time you're listening to this, the game will be over. Yeah. Um, well, uh, so Bobby, the, there's also NFL, the Giants doing their best to blow it after starting mm-hmm. six and one. Um, the Cowboys actually, pretended like they were going to do their best to blow it. And man, I really thought the Cowboys were going to blow that. Game. Just kidding. We're going to win. But, but meanwhile, so uh, actually the irony of all of this is, so now the Giants have this massively important Sunday night game with Washington this Sunday. Because yeah, it actually matters. It actually actually has. It matters a lot. These are currently the six and seven seeds in the NFC. I, Bobby, I think the winner's in. Um, yeah, I, I think it's very likely. I mean, I expect that to be the Giants, but the, the Commanders have been inexplicably. Uh, I hate the Giants it. have looked commanders mediocre. Better than that, but but the other thing that really was helpful was the Seahawks losing at home to Carolina because they're currently the first team out of the wild card, and the Seahawks play Thursday night against San Francisco. So if San Francisco if San Francisco can beat the Seahawks as well, um, then it's also possible that the loser of Sunday night's game will go to the playoffs. Something else. Well, do you think the Cowboys? I know you're not a Cowboys fan, but what do you uh, think no. as an outside observer? Are they are they legit? I mean, they did almost blow it against the uh, the Texans, which is pretty. Hard. So I think the Cowboys are much like almost every other team in the NFL that's good this year which is when they're on, they're very good, but they have these inexplicable games where they're just not on. Um, and the only team I've seen all year that really, you know, with one exception, hasn't had a funk is is Philadelphia, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. No, they're really – Jalen Hurts, my goodness. I know. So, I mean, I hate to say that I think the Eagles are the prohibitive favorite going into the – the playoffs, but I think the Eagles hey, are the prohibitive. Not favorite. too late for a, not too early for a Super Bowl prediction. Who uh, the Eagles against whom? Man, the AFC is so wide open right now. Um, yeah, the Bills have kind of been injured back into mortality. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's you know it's Crawford like it's a talk between the Bills and the Chiefs, right? Like I feel like I'll say the Bills um, because I think. The Bills' defense is better, especially if Von Miller's back in time for the. Oh wait, no, he he tore his ACL. He's out for the year, but yeah. I, I still think the Bills' defense might be the the edge. So so I'm going to go Eagles Bills as my Super Bowl, which would be a lot of fun. 
All right, I'm going to go on a limb, and right at the moment, I'm going to make a completely outlandish prediction that Brock Purdy is going to lead the 49ers to the wow, look at that NFC Championship. And I think that might depend upon Debo Samuel's health. I'm telling you, there's yeah. something, there's something um, going on there. The one thing I do, but the so so someone someone was making a big deal on the internet over the weekend about how it could be the first time ever that every team from a division gets into the playoffs. I'm like, dude, Wait, what? <laughs> it's the first year ever that that was possible. Well, no, because it's possible in the NFC that all three wild card teams come from the NFC East. That the oh, Cowboys, I, I, I misunderstood. Right. Yeah. That the Cowboys, no. Giants, and Commanders are the wild card teams. But of course, this is the first year that was. Yeah. possible <laughs> so, like, so it's, it's true. never happened before i mean it and never I have could have happened before <laughs> oh man Amazing. um all right texas up four yep um any, read any good books lately um yes let me think um i just finished something good i was gonna recommend I'm in the middle of listening to, first of all, I'm listening to Will Inboden's The Peacemaker, which I've recommended here. This is Will's new book about Reagan's foreign policy. Yep. And what's really cool about it is Will's a historian. He's our colleague at UT. He's amazing. And uh, he's done not only a lot of interviewing at the principals, but he's had access to a lot of the just declassified records from that era. So if you're a, if you're a Cold War uh, Reagan era you know, enthusiast, of those times, it's full of interesting uh, sort of fly on the wall stuff. So that's really good. I'm also listening to Bono's uh, memoir, mm. Surrender. Are, are you a U2 guy at all? Mm. You kind of are or you aren't, I guess, these days. Yeah. Uh, um, I loved, loved him growing up. And let me, let me connect it to our, our show. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, these, this band out of Dublin, growing up in the time of the Troubles, a lot of their early music really directly responsive to that, um, including most famously, of course, Sunday Boy Sunday. Um, that stuff really resonated with me when I was a kid. And when I first started listening to interesting music, it was because the older sister of a friend of mine was playing uh, playing Gloria off of October. Mm. Mm-hmm. I got real interested in this, and it got in what they were interested in, interested in got me interested in terrorism and political violence and, and the sort of the emotional rage that Bono's voice and Edge's guitar and Adam Clayton, Clayton's bass and Larry Mullen's drumming all sort of convey in some of the songs really spoke to me and mm-hmm. really helped set my interest in these areas. So it's been very enjoyable uh, listening to his memoir and his voice. You got to like a piece. I don't know if you're going to do this for the shadow docket. Are you going to read uh, supposedly yeah that's the plan okay i think that really makes it special so i'm glad you're going to do that <laughs> although there are some folks who think that um karen should do it so that she can editorialize as she goes uh, i i feel like you should go in the studio and then karen and i should both be in there with like a bud like a chest speed chest <laughs> button where we can interrupt you and just sort of you know i can i can <laughs> i can be picky about things and she can comment this sounds like a good plan Oh man. Um, wait, there's one more thing I wanted to tell you. Um, that sounds great. I, so I, I'm in the middle of, um, oh gosh, I'm in the middle of James Hornfisher's book about oh, yeah. Guadalcanal called Neptune's Inferno. Oh yeah. I, that's on the shelf right behind me. Oh, there you go. What a, what a, what a, what a, what a great guy he was, uh, passed away too soon recently. Yep. And, uh, yep. Yeah, but his his writings, his Navy World War II U.S. Navy writings were amazing. Yep. Um, yeah. And actually, um, interestingly, he yeah. I believe he was Will's agent for the Peacemaker. There you go. It's all it's all the whole world's connected. Yeah. Six degrees of Will and Bowden. There you go. <laughs> that could be a short uh, title too. Uh, but I kind of like not that George Clinton. Yeah, uh, I think not that George Clinton is pretty is is it has to be the clubhouse leader. Um. All right. Well, listen, um, we will probably not be back before 2023. Um, you know, we'll try, but like, we gotta be realistic because one of us is, um, <laughs> he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek while there is still Twitter. Um, we are at NSL podcast. Uh, one first is Steve Vladek at substack.com. Uh, happy holidays, everybody. 
Uh, let's go Michigan and stay safe out there. Oh, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. Go Frogs. <laughs> you tried to that by me. No way. I did try. But, so Bobby and I actually rarely are on like direct opposite sides of a big game, but we are on direct opposite sides of the, of the, first, semi, of the first semifinal. I loved it in the Rose Bowl many years ago when we took down a Big Ten team in the form of Wisconsin. I look forward to seeing it again at the Fiesta Bowl. Um, when? Next year? Mm-mm. Coming up. Uh, okay, so so I'm just going to go on here. I'm going Michigan 38, TCU 27. Uh, I think you got it inverted, but the, the, the over-under is fine on that. <laughs> it's the other way around, which should have been Heisman Trophy winner Max Duggan once again showing uh, what a, the combination of heart and power can do. I think we're about to find out again that the Big Ten and the Big 12 are two different conferences. Oh, my God. That's exactly how the Wisconsin fans talked before we beat them at the Rose Bowl. So yeah, that's Wisconsin, though. <laughs> we can agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Stay safe out there. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Adios.